And now I will introduce today's two special guests. In 1971, at the age of 22, Margaret Trudeau became the youngest First Lady in the world when she married Canadian Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau. She was immediately thrust into the public limelight, becoming one of the most watched and talked about women in the country. She led a rich and interesting life, traveling the nation and the world extensively, and raising three sons. But, public, but life in the public eye was not entirely satisfying or entirely her own. When asked about her role as the wife of one of the most prominent men in the country, Margaret Trudeau famously responded, I want to be more than a rose in my husband's lapel. <laughs> After leaving the marriage in 1977, Margaret went on to lead an even more interesting life as she became a photographer, an actress, a television host, and an author of two books, Beyond Reason and Consequences, and I think there's another one coming out next year. She remarried and raised two more children, and more recently she became a grandmother, and a very proud one by all reports. Congratulations. Though she's led a very public life, Margaret Trudeau has also had a very private life, and for many years, a hidden one. She has suffered from the debilitating effects of bipolar disorder for all of her adult life. Now, after receiving medical treatment that has given her life balance and happiness, she is a strong and effective advocate for mental health issues, helping people overcome the stigma of mental illness and promoting appropriate treatment. She is working with the Royal Ottawa Hospital to raise funds for their new hospital and raise public awareness of mental health issues, and she also sits on the Executive Advisory Board of the UBC Mental Health Institute. And she's active in other causes as well. She's the Honorary President of WaterCan, a charitable Canadian non-governmental agency dedicated to helping the poorest communities in developing countries build sustainable water supply and sanitation services. Our other guest is also a pretty amazing woman. Valerie Pringle is one of the country's best known and respected media professionals. She started her career at age 19 as a student reporter at CFRB Radio in Toronto after graduating from Radio and Television Arts at Ryerson in 1974. Since then, she's moved from one success to another. For many years, she was the face and the voice of CBC TV News and Current Affairs program Midday. She went on to co-host CTV's Canada AM and then W5. Valerie has co-produced and hosted a number of documentaries for Discovery Channel, for CTV Travel, and for Vision TV. She was appointed a member of the Order of Canada for her contributions to the communications field. And she's also very involved in a number of not-for-profit organizations. She chairs the board of the Trans-Canada Trail and is on the foundation boards of the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, Women's College Hospital, and the Canadian Broadcast Museum. But it's not because she's an award-winning journalist or an outstanding volunteer that Valerie Pringle joins us today. She's here as a mother and as a family member whose experience with mental illness comes very close to home. Her daughter, Catherine, now 28, has suffered from severe panic and anxiety attacks, and Valerie has been a very public spokesperson about her family's experience in seeking, and seeking help and finding support. Valerie and Margaret, I'd like to welcome you, and I'd like to ask you to join us, please, on stage to um, share 
with our audience your experiences. After you. After you, dear. <laughs> it's a great honor and a pleasure to be here speaking about this topic particularly, which, as you've just heard, is uh, very important to both Margaret and me. And I'll be delighted, and uh, Margaret would be, obviously, to answer your questions. And if you want to fill out things, we'll just get to them. Um, try not to turn our backs <laughs> too much to you uh, over there because we're focused a little bit this way. I'll start by saying, because we want it, I mean, we have personal stories, but we do want to get a message across and, and stick to the topic, which is children and youth mental health as well. So we'll try not to stray off topic too much. So I think by starting, I might say it's interesting that in the introduction we heard about your bipolar disorder being with you all your adult life. But yes. you say as you look back now, it started earlier, which 80% of psychiatric illnesses I, do. I would suspect. So um, we thought uh, that the onset of my bipolar condition was uh, after the birth of my second son with postpartum depression. Then it was called baby blues. And there really wasn't very effective treatment. I remember the psychiatrist wanted to uh, get me back to being a good prime minister's wife. I sort of felt like a broken car that needed something fixed, but it wasn't the right approach. Uh, but looking back, uh, as I have been, and talking a lot because I'm working on a book on mental health, um, I was probably always bipolar. I think my, the words that come to mind that my family remembers about me, uh, vivacious, capricious, uh, life of the party, uh, moody, uh, quiet, uh, prone to tears. Um, bipolar is an exaggeration of emotions for those who don't understand what bipolar is. It's an, a chemical imbalance in the brain. There's not enough serotonin, uh, which drives you into a deep depression. And there's too much dopamine, which uh, flies you up into the highest uh, euphoria and, for me, madness. And I've been there a couple of times, and I never want to go back up there again. And so I have had to learn how to live with uh, my bipolar condition because it's a life, lifelong um, condition. Uh, what I had is a, in my childhood, though, being raised in the 50s, I was very lucky to, very, very lucky to be born in North Vancouver to a fine father and a really good mom. And I was raised well. I had four sisters. Uh, you remember in the 50s, um, we didn't have any of the television and the toys that we had then. We were sent out to play. Uh, I played a lot. I had to eat a very very strict diet of my mother's food, and I had to eat it. That was that. But she did also give us every morning, I remembered, from um, daylight saving when it started or stopped till the next uh, April, halibut liver oil or cod liver oil tablets. Now, that's one of the things that is in my vitamin regime uh, for my mental health is that's one of my supplements is uh, omega fish oil, and it's very important. So I was given fish oil, so, and I was given a, a balanced diet. We certainly didn't have junk food. There was no McDonald's around the corner, and I had to play a, a lot. I did get well-educated, of course, being a Canadian girl. The schools were great. Uh, I had a good, good life. I think the balance of my childhood, of the way that I was raised, having to do chores, having to work, having to take care of, of my own world in my family. I mean, we had a community in our family, a clan, my father called it. Um, that helped balance. There's no question. But I do remember when I was over-emotional, my mother would say, Margaret, 
just go to your room and come when you can come out when you have a better attitude. Well, I ask now, what was in my little girly room that could have helped me deal with these huge emotions that were flooding me all the time? These wild thoughts, these big, big dreams, these, these small worries. I mean, I just was always flooded. And when you get manic, you're racing as well. Uh, so I, I'm sure that that didn't help. And my mom wanted, my sister called my, my um, mom when uh, I first had postpartum depression and said, Mom, one of us should go back to Ottawa. Mark's in trouble. I think she needs some help. And my mom said, you mean a psychiatrist? No, no, no. They'll just, they just blame the mother. Mom, <laughs> mom. She may not have been wrong. Mom, we, we <laughs> did. Part. Sorry, mom. We did. We do. I do. My psychiatrist does blame you. Because while you well raised me and you gave me a wonderful education and uh, my, uh, my IQ from my genes was very high, you forgot about my EQ, my emotional intelligence, my learning how to deal with these huge emotions that uh, my sisters didn't seem to have and I had. And it was always trying to suppress it. Uh, one of my psychiatrists told me that he felt, felt that um, uh, depression is really suppressed anger, that you're not getting out and you just get deeper and deeper into feeling hopeless and unable to fight. And anger actually is very good. I was never allowed to be angry. I was always told to be a pleasing little girl. That was another part of it, too. I was stunned, I remember, when, I when you told your story and came out publicly in the newspaper um, about your diagnosis, that in this day and age, it had taken so long. I was diagnosed How early. in your life it took so was, long for I you to get the proper help and treatment? I was diagnosed. Um, it was um, Stephen Smith, who was the um, head of the Liberal Party in Ontario at the time. He was also a psychiatrist. And he wrote a very kind letter to Pierre after one of my acting out manic, kind of totally irresponsible, inappropriate, and bad. Behaviors. Did it involve singing? <laughs> Maybe the Rolling Stones. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, whatever. Singers. Whatever, whatever. A lot of singing and dancing. Whatever. Uh, uh, he said, you know, I think maybe Margaret might be suffering from manic depression, which is what it was called. And that was followed up with a nice meeting in a garden in, 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 uh, in Ottawa with a psychiatrist uh, and, uh, and talking. And of course, he found a perfectly delightful, uh, lovely mummy of little babies and someone who seemed to be doing just fine. I, uh, I was very, very good at masking. Um, what was really going on because I had been raised to be a pleasing uh, person and to not show emotion and to not rock the boat, so to speak. Uh, so when I do rock the boat, it's a big rock because it's not, <laughs> not usual. Anyway, it rocks. Uh, so I, I think that I had that early diagnosis. I even was put in hospital. Pierre put me in hospital when I was Prime Minister as wife. I wasn't put into a psychiatric ward. It was about the time that one flew over. The cuckoo's nest was, was that. And I, uh, we'll get to stigma. Uh, <laughs> and I said, if you think I'm crazy, then put me in a psychiatric ward, not this executive suite for men executives with 
prostate and urinary tract. Or, or alcoholism, which they were probably, you know, tucked away in there as well. Uh, anyway, no, I tried treatment, but really the breakthrough came for people suffering from bipolar in 1985, around about then when the first uh, uh, antidepressants, uh, serotonin uptake drugs, were put on the market because it did the one thing that was missing always in me uh, when I would get so depressed and I wouldn't know, I didn't even know what serotonin was, none of us did, and I didn't know why I couldn't get back on my feet when I got knocked down. I didn't, I just get, got deeper and deeper into depression, uh, as depressed people do, pushing everybody away, blaming everybody else because of my problems. Oh, Pierre's fault, the nanny's fault, someone else's fault, not mine. Ra running away, trying to escape it, self-medicating with marijuana, because I like it when you than, said, than, than uh, alcohol. You, you've said that marijuana was probably a really huge mistake in terms of really harming you. Oh, yes. Every time I was hospitalized, well, two times I was seriously hospitalized, it followed quite a lot of self-medication with the magic herb. Because I thought that that was the way I could lift myself out of the sadness, out of the depression, because it is a euphoric drug. And it's something that I'd been, since the 60s, it was our, our choice. I mean, drug of choice. We didn't, I, it was always that. It was there. And but it probably there. made things much it worse triggers, for it you. It triggers you into mania. Yeah. It has a propensity to it. Does it? There's not a direct cause, but they do say. And this study didn't come out until, oh, maybe six or seven, or maybe more, maybe more than that, ten years ago, that there really is a link between cannabis and obviously there's a link between cocaine and manic because that's what cocaine. Any stimulants will push you up. But we thought that marijuana was sort of a benign, happy choice um, instead of alcohol. No, it's not a happy choice at can all. Can you for take someone. marijuana or alcohol or anything now? Or? Oh yes, I can. All of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's human. really good news. I'm human. No, no. Um, everything in moderation. But no, no marijuana. No, I have to. I have to face that I can't. Uh, <sighs> alcohol is no problem because I, I've never had an alcohol problem. What you? The problem is not the alcohol. The problem is not the drugs. Finally, they got it right and started putting mental health and addiction together in one place instead of saying, your problem is that you're an alcoholic, not your problem is you've got a mental issue that you're not treating, that you haven't faced, and you're, you're trying to self-medicate and drown your, your problems with, with alcohol or escape it. It's just your way out. And that, whatever you, some people use food. Mm -hmm. Some people will get so, 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 so overweight so that they don't have to face being, uh, you know, they just eat till they can't stop eating. Well, uh, they can never stop eating or taking drugs or alcohol. They're I, the symptom of the problem, not the problem. I was listening to you talk about your mom. I mean, the person. <laughs> who's become a poster child for mental health along with me, if, if I can call myself that, is uh, my daughter Catherine, who is spectacular. Should be here today, but she's very busy working. Uh, but this is a cause that she has championed enormously too. And um, if I think through her life, you know, she'd get overwrought yeah. for a skating test, for a test test. Yeah. She had a mild eating disorder. At one point, she was concerned enough about her mood swings that she said she thought she needed to see someone. I remember taking her to the wonderful Diane Sachs, and she had a conversation, and this but was a you're, teenage you're thing. you're advocating for her. You're doing everything yeah. right now. Well, that was, that was good, but it, it did get to a point um, 
it, it, that it got worse, the crying, and, yeah. and through university and exams, I'd get her oh, dad on the phone. Oh, You'd start the, um, the bromides, because yeah. I've never really experienced that at all. I mean, I can say I've never had a panic attack. Um, you know, everyone's been nervous, but, you know, this was just off the charts. Her friends were very good at helping her through it. But when she finally started her first real job, she was living at home then and fell apart. Like, she just was a quivering, crying ball on a bed. And no, like, oh, you'll get better. Look your record. Look how good you are. Look how fabulous you are. These words were pretty useless. It's like your mom telling you to go and get a good attitude or whatever. So what was interesting then is that finally, I guess, I realized, we realized she had to get some help. She went to a GP. She got um, antidepressants. She's on Effexor. This was not great news for her, and I suppose it isn't for anybody. You go, oh, great, crazy pills for me. What's wrong with me? And then some therapy was advised that was more like counseling, which had a lot of questions about mothers. <laughs> anyway, I, I did call uh, David Goldblum at CAMH at that point, whom I knew. And he saw Catherine, and he talked about um, cognitive behavior therapy, which has been really helpful with uh, that, panic it, and anxiety. It, it, there isn't a pill. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's a pill that'll get you on firm ground like everybody else is. At least you can think clearly, or maybe not that clearly, depending on what the pill is, but at least you're on, on the firm ground. And then you've got to start the therapy. You've got and to start talking. You've got to get rid of all of that hate of your self-loathing that came from the mistakes you made. You've got to get rid of your fear of ever being able to contribute. You've got to get rid of your, your jealousy that, that you're not normal and other people seem to have such a nice life and you have or to get an rid of your time. anger. That how come, why me with a mental illness? I know. Why and it's I forever. Have to take drugs forever. I had one psychiatrist get up at a question and answer period after I'd given uh, my speech, and she said, uh, Margaret, I, I seem to think that you think that you've recovered from your bipolar condition. Don't you know that there is no recovery? I said to her, Oh, well, I guess I'm cured uh, from the fear yeah. of my bipolar condition because I know what it is. I self-monitor, I know how to deal with my emotions finally. Maybe I'm just finally a grown-up. And that is the problem with our youth and our teenagers, is to, for them to have the maturity to accept the hard choices. And taking medication and being compliant is a hard one. Most of the medication has side effects that teenagers will be particularly unhappy about. Mm -hmm. uh, decreased libido and uh, fat. No, it's something, something to deal, to deal with. You have to be so strong to know that this is not forever. The medication doesn't, antidepressants don't have to be forever. What is the antidepressant doing? It's raising your serotonin level and keeping it up. Okay, how do we get serotonin? We get serotonin from exercise. We get serotonin from laughing at a joke. We get serotonin, of course, from sex. We get serotonin from, from eating good food, from sleeping well, from being healthy. Most of the people in this room, well, a third of you won't have good serotonin because a third of Canadians are, are depressed. A third of you, and uh, the rest of the two, two thirds, and a third of you will, only a third of the third of you will ever accept, admit it and get help. That's your problem because you could be so much better, so quickly if you only reached out and said, help. Well, I was, just to, to finish about Kath, one of the things that I was so, no, proud of, we were, her dad and I, and are so proud of her, that after this particularly bad episode, and she couldn't work during that time, um, a friend of hers, who will never forget the kindness, because, I mean, even as her mom, I couldn't kind of get her 
that step to work the first day. And it was a friend named Heather Armstrong who literally phoned her and said, get in the shower and call me. And then get out, okay, get dressed, call mm -hmm. me. Get in your car, call me. I'll meet you outside the office and met mm -hmm. her. Walked her into the office. And she was just, you know, oh, they're going to think I'm, what do I say, what do I say? And everyone's going to look at me. And it was so embarrassing to have missed work because of this. And um, she'd said to her dad the night before, what do I say? And he said, tell the truth. And so she went in, and everyone's going, oh, Catherine, you know, where have you been? What's up? And she said, well, I've been having panic and anxiety issues. And then went to her boss and said, that, you know, uh, that's the issue. And every, everyone was like, oh, my sister, my mother, my brother. You know, Everything. like it was gone, and it was known. Yeah. There was no shame of it. And um, that was something we were hugely proud of. And just to finish that story, as I became more involved with, with CAMH on the foundation board and in the campaign cabinet, um, we had mostly because of Mike Wilson, who I think is mm -hmm. such a hero, having mm -hmm. spoken out about his son's suicide, which was very brave. James Bartleman, Ron Ellis, these are mm -hmm. really brave, wonderful people. And they'd said to me, would you do a public awareness campaign? And I thought, Lord, in my family, alcoholics, drug abuse. I mean, who, who doesn't? This is everybody's family. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And don't hide it. Don't not talk about it. It's everywhere, and it's time we shed some light. And I said, well, I probably, Catherine would agree to, be talked about uh, in this ad, um, but it's sort of lame, you know, panic and anxiety disorder is sort of low on psychiatric, schizophrenia, other things that are way more serious. Um, mm. And surely we all, there's no stigma attached. Who's not on antidepressants or, you know, who doesn't know about this? So I mean, I said, but I'll do it for sure if it helps. And they put up these bus shelter ads and radio ads. And I found I was so wrong. There wasn't a day that went by that people weren't coming up to me yeah. and saying, I've never spoken about this. Yeah. I'm far too ashamed. I can't admit. Yeah. You know, they, it's still, it's a personality failing. Yeah. It's, a, it's their flaw. Character flaw. And kids, you know, ways. they're afraid to have that label and they don't want to name it. I say the shame is not having a mental illness. The shame is having one and not seeking treatment and not getting better and not being able to be the whole wonderful person that you're meant to be and that you're impaired by something in your brain and your brain health. And why can't we look at our brain as the same as any of our other organs? Yes, it's more mystifying. It's sort of the last frontier of, 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 of medical research, understanding it. But it still is an organ that can have its dysfunctions and be sympathetic to people as equally as you would when someone gets told they're going to have diabetes, have diabetes and going to be taking insulin for the rest of their life. When someone says to you, I, I'm bipolar and I'm going to be taking medication for the rest of life, don't mock them. Say, yay, good for you, because you're taking hold of your life. You're taking hold of, of your problem. We all have problems. We are all flawed. No, that was a shock to me to find out that I wasn't perfect. <laughs> Not you. <laughs> a big Surely shock. not. And, and you asked me at the beginning, how come it took so long? It was me. I was in a prison, as the doors sang, the prison of my own device. I would not accept that I had a mental illness. I thought I could get through it all by myself. It was just my life was so high. And, well, my, you know, everything. I had every rationale and reason blaming everybody else, and that's what people who have an untreated mental illness will do, and particularly uh, ones who are still very angry um, about their condition. Um, they'll blame everybody else. Your marriage, 90% of marriages are bipolar where one spouse is bipolar, untreated, 
um, fail. Uh, two marriages that failed because of uh, the roller coaster of emotions that I had led my poor Libra balanced husband. I know. Well, you look at you look at this and you think, you know, that again we talk about one in five people suffering from a mental illness in this country, and then the number that, that's even way more massive who are living with them and caring yes. for them yes. and dealing yes. with them. And it's who's talking about damage. it? But, I mean, if yeah. someone, does, did your husband say, you know, was there a support group for, whoa, you know, what's it like living with bipolar? They need that. Yeah. People who are caring for schizophrenics yeah. and yeah. it's an enormously difficult situation. And what I have to do every single day, it's your kid. It's, bipolar is all a question of balance. And so if you want to be as, as drug-free as you can get with this condition, because all of the drugs have side effects, and the biggest side effect, and everybody will say it, but I'm so creative in my manic mm -hmm. stage, and you're going to take that away from me. Yeah, you are. Yeah, it does. There's no question. It puts a ceiling. It brings you down and, and stops you from, from being too high and brings you up from being too low and puts you in a nice place where you ha can be a whole contributing normal human being. Well, we wouldn't have had a Van Gogh's paintings. We wouldn't have had half of the creative work in the world if all of these uh, people had, had been taking their Prozac and their but strong Seroquel having, having said that, one of my very favorite <laughs> interviews I ever did was with Leonard Cohen. And I said to him, this was a while ago, you've been, you've been suffering depression your yeah, whole life, yeah. yes. And he said, I've treated it with Prozac, alcohol, Buddhism, yeah. sex, yeah. whatever. Me too. Yeah. And All of the above. <laughs> you and Leonard seem to have a lot in common. Oh, yeah. But anyway, Leonard. he said he saw his art as a, as a victory over suffering, yes. not as a result of suffering. And he also said, which oh, I always I love. Whatever it comes, it's art, though, isn't yeah. it? it but isn't. he did say that the best thing he ever wrote was that line from Anthem, that song where he says, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack That's in everything. Like. That's yeah. how but the light gets in. And he in. said, I think I nailed it. Yeah, he did <laughs> nail it because it is the light. That is the light, the crack where the light comes in. And it is in our cracks and in our flaws that we become unique and beautiful and not the same. And but so in the how do you communicate that about, to children, okay, though, Margaret? Okay, so this is where I, it's our, my concern. I'm working with uh, Dr. Alan Young out at uh, UBC, in the Department of Psychiatry, and he's working on bipolar in children, and I've learned a lot from him. One of the problems, he's a British uh, uh, psychiatrist, in, and now Canadian, but he, uh, the Americans are throwing drugs at the children. Uh, with who now did, who are now diagnosing bipolar, which is good because uh, well, they used to diagnose um, bipolar children from in their manic phase anyway as being attention deficit and give them Ritalin, which is only more stimulation, which wasn't really the solution for those children, uh, and the depression w sort of ignoring it, and, and so now there is a, a reality of it. We really need to work at it through uh, diet and exercise and proper play. And I mean real play, imaginative play, not play like this. I mean a few hours of that, but not this, this, this. Real outdoors. And I know we're afraid to let our children outdoors, but what a shame. Mm -hmm. uh, the world that's out there for children, if they are allowed to be in it and, and play and uh, in, in nature. Anyway, it was an important part of my childhood. I, I did have someone flash me once. Who doesn't? I mean, <laughs> I did. It was when I was hitchhiking down <laughs> Young Street going to Ryerson so, on so a daily basis. So there's always been people. <laughs> my daughter were hitchhiking on Young Street. I'd be flashes. disturbed. And we should trust that our children can have some play. Okay, I'll, some here's play. a question. Yeah. 
Uh, what kind of impact does stigma have? I think it's, it, it, it comes out of ignorance. Stigma is, is not being informed and educated. It's being, uh, um, and it, it comes out of ignorance. And the only way to get rid of it is with education and people becoming aware that how wrong it is just to shut off a whole population of people because they have a flaw that you perceive as a character flaw, when in fact it's just a, a, a physical Part mental effect. Yeah. I mean, we've seen changes, huge changes in how we see AIDS. I mean, so many I think things. There are big changes. Cancer, now. and there yeah. are changes yeah. coming in mental health. Yeah. I know that. I, I mean, there are so many people that have taken leadership roles, and I know you know CAMH that I'm involved in. I'm involved in something we called support all the, um, across the country as well. Canada Post Foundation for Mental Health as well, which yeah. is... Great West Life, yeah. the insurance company, has the most remarkable web website, greatwestlife.com. Their mental, virtual mental health website. I can get papers from psychiatrists at Mayo Clinic through it. I mean, through the they, website. it's just an absolutely open, beautiful website to help people understand mental illness and to, to get early help, how to get her early help. Of course, the bottom line, why, why is Great West Life, the big insurance company, doing this? The bottom line, it's a huge cost to our economy to have people who stay depressed, who stay in a rut where they can't function, where they're not functioning because of a mental illness that they're too afraid to admit that they have. Don't call it mental illness. Call it your brain health. Call well, it actually, else. Bill Wilkerson, <laughs> who I was on a panel with just two days ago talking about mental health and workplace issues. He felt it would be a great leap forward if we stopped saying mental illness. When I we start breaking health. it down brain into, health. well, yeah. even just saying schizophrenia, panic and anxiety disorders. Even labels yeah. are distressing. Yeah. Of course, there's some that are absolutely clear what they are, and some that are not so clear. There may be a, a scattering of different issues in yours. Just talk about it, about it having a balanced, functioning, happy brain that, that is clear and thinks clearly. When you're manic and when you're depressed, you're not thinking clearly. You're not, and you, the worst thing that happens, and it happens again and again and again, it certainly happened to me, denial. You just will not get help. You will not accept that you need help. I'm not mentally ill. You're mentally ill if you think I'm mentally ill. I so hard. Well, this I've is such a hard thing for parents. 50% of recovery apparently is in accepting the di your diagnosis. The doctor says, then you're on your way to find, I would have done anything. He thought I was so compliant when I, I had my complete breakdown after Michelle and Pierre's death. I t totally lost my mind, t complete madness, totally hospitalized, had to t start from absolutely the ground up to, to, to get well again. <clears throat> and the whole essence of it, was balance, was just making hard choices that would lead to a balanced lifestyle, getting my serotonin out of food and exercising. I got a personal trainer. I hate going to the gym. I have spent so much wasted money. <laughs> on You're, you look awesome. No, I'm buff, because, but I'm only buff <laughs> because I, it makes me feel so good. Yeah. And it's all about getting your metabolism. And I dieted. I got put on so much weight at different times, up and down. And I dieted. And how distressing diets are in every way to the family, to you, to your friends, everywhere. No dieting. Just find out what you're, how you to get your metabolism going, how to get that energy so that you can function at high speed. Mm. You know, well, not high speed. <laughs> high just, speed's just fun. <laughs> speaking, speaking just to the stigma uh, issue, I remember when I took my first tour of CAMH down on Queen Street, which they are transforming, as you know, and we happily accept donations. Kelly Meehan is over here with a large purse. Um, <laughs> but when I went through, and I mean, the building's 
the old buildings are an abomination. Um, and then you find out there is no gift shop. This is a hospital with 600 beds. That's more than sick kids. It's huge. No gift shop because there's no economic model. Nobody comes to visit. Nobody buys gifts for all the people who are staying in there who probably are feeling worse than most people in any hospital. And I was part of a campaign last um, Christmas called Gifts of Light, which was a fundraising thing. Catherine and I did a lot of uh, TV interviews mm -hmm. and et cetera, um, just talking, uh, trying to get money so that everybody in CAMH would get a gift last Christmas. Bathrobe, a blanket, a pair of slippers. And you know, I went to the mood and anxiety unit one day and I was delivering some of these. The staff did an amazing job. Um, but that was trying to reduce stigma and also to reach out and say, as Catherine said, it's like a hug, you know, yeah. because the most important thing, yeah. and she would say this too, is I've learned to try and get better at dealing with her. She, she realizes this is for life, and it's sort of depressing for her to think, am I always going to be this? I'll see her face go flat. Sometimes she gets a little rigid, and, you know, she's just getting a bit panicky, she'll say. Or I'll phone her, and she's very weepy. And, I mean, instead of now just going, well, you know, you know, sing a happy song or whatever, you know, you might have thought, um, come here, come, come, see me, or I'll come to you. We just sit. She just wants to be held. She wants to know people will be there. She, she doesn't want to think that, oh my gosh, you know, they'll get sick of me. They'll get tired of this. They'll get fed up with my behavior. Um, no one will want to marry me. No one will want to be my friend for long term because, you know, every once in a while I dip down. And I can't do anything about it, and I don't want to have to feel, you know, guilty or ashamed because of that. But that's the fear that people will support you. It isolates you, and it marginalizes you as you go deeper and deeper into depression. You, you know that you're no fun. You are no fun. You haven't got an, an ability to laugh. Nothing's funny. You're not getting enough serotonin. You do, you have no delight, and so you you know that you're a bore and a party pooper. So you stop going out. And you stop accepting invitations. And then you think, well, I, I probably can't work either. And you stop. And, and you get deeper and deeper into this hole. And it gets darker and darker and lonelier and lonelier. And then and you what you hear crisis. is that you don't, you don't, you reach crisis, don't think you can get out. Which means hospitalization. Yeah. And there's nothing nice about being in a psychiatric ward. Nothing. Except the good people who are in there helping you. But it's, it's pretty frightening for anybody, I think. Here's a question. How valuable, how valuable do you think Canadian youth services are to children, and what can a community do to help identify mental issues like anxiety in children? You know, yeah, certainly suicide prevention is one of those things. Aboriginal kids are certainly uh, at crisis. I know the ministers here, I mean, they're preparing. There was a great paper done about Canadian, you know, kids and men, identifying mental health as one of the critical three issues to be dealt with and that uh, the Ontario government's been looking into that. Having said that, I think Canada's the only country in the G8 that doesn't have a mental health strategy. We are, should be so ashamed, so ashamed. Now, we have a great mental health commission. Michael Kirby, mm -hmm. the senator, is the head of it, and it's just gathering information all across the country. It's wonderful. I just hope that we have a government in place when it's finished that will act on the... Uh, uh, recommendations because it's just to, to find out what's wrong and do nothing about it and we know what's wrong. We know, we know what's, what's wrong. wrong. We know the numbers are enormous. We, we know, know as I said that 80% of um, children, what is my stat? I got to get this right. As my husband said, for journalists you get your, all your facts wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's talking about financial ones so I'm I hope. <laughs> that with money. 
80% of all psychiatric disorders emerge in adolescence, and they're the most common illness that begins at that age. It's estimated that 70% of childhood mental illness cases can be solved with early diagnosis yeah. and intervention. But the issue is so much that of access and treatment. Yeah. And so many people, because of the posters even, have called me, how do I get help? Where yeah. do I get help? I think we you just know, need to have someone help us navigate the maze that is our healthcare system when it involves our children and our, or our friends' children or ourselves. You have to become an advocate. You have to be informed. You have to go on government websites. You have to find out. Canadian Mental Health Association, of course, there's 165 of them across the country. Great grassroots first door to go through and say, what am I going to do? Mm, you know, I need help. help. I need help, or my daughter needs help, or my friend needs help. Somebody, they can start. Your family Suicide, yeah. the leading cause of death in adolescence. But the attempts outnumber completed four to one. So I mean, there is... Crying for help, Such and, a and again, there. it comes down to emotional intelligence. I, really, we have to teach, raise our children with empathy. That wonderful mm -hmm. Mary Gordon and her work, and she started with roots of empathy, and now I see she's got seeds of empathy. Mm -hmm. And it's raising children uh, by not putting an expectation on them of what, how you want them to grow up and be my son the doctor, my son the lawyer. My son the politician. My son the future prime minister. <laughs> yeah, right over my cold I dead body. I don't think Justin has any pressure on him at all. No, no it's my daughter who you should be looking, looking at. She's and then the your fabulous baby son who you say is Yes, yes. No, but I, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We have, to rate, we have to identify early on the little characters and the flaws. The short, my, we don't call them flaws in our family. We call them shortcomings mm -hmm. that they have and help guide them as parents through the tumultuous emotions, the tumultuous you know, bullying, rejection, all the things that are going to happen to children. They are going to be knocked down. You can't protect them from being... None of us can be protected from being knocked down by life by somebody, somewhere, sometime. It's how we get up again that is the measure of how successful our lives will be. And we can, many of us can't get up on our own and don't even know how to where to start to get back on our feet after life has knocked us down. No, you need help. Uh, you need help and reaching out for help. And I think youth services, I think any organization that has a compassionate mandate is so necessary mm -hmm. and so valuable. And I should just put in a plug. Um, the Canada Post Foundation for Mental Health has just raised a million yeah, dollars yeah. this year. The websites up yeah. and uh, for frontline organizations that that's what that one's all about about yeah. getting out into communities small yes. communities yeah. and g giving the first um, mm -hmm. access point so people can apply for those grants if anybody in this room is uh, you know interested in that uh, there's a million dollars up um, to be spent this year uh, to try and get services out there and to hear Moya Green well, the president of Canada Post, who's just such a strong advocate, talking about our share health care and people who care about this issue, who are touched by it, which is almost everybody, marching out of their homes and all screaming our share health care uh, is quite something. Well, my hat's off to James Bettleman. What he did is an extraordinary proactive response. Because we all think uh, a suicide a week in our Aboriginal communities and what did he do? He said, well, we've got to give those children hope. Mm -hmm. And trucks and fire trucks and police cars just drove up a million books up beyond, uh, what do they say, where the roads don't go mm -hmm. or whatever, what forests, whatever. Because he thought if the children at least could read books, 
it would open up a world of hope to them. It would open up a world of possibility. They might think of themselves in a different way than having no hope, just nothing but despair and, po and a cycle of poverty that isn't going to end. And of course, the way the cycle of poverty is ending is with education and is with, with the children having motivation and hope. But when there is none, and books are such an important part and cannot be underestimated. I know that's why I, another reason that I was a, a, had a pretty ha happy, healthy childhood is that I read voraciously all the time, mm -hmm. just left and escaped into this extraordinary world. Mm -hmm. Proactive in your community, providing the tools so people can get on. James Bartleman, mm -hmm. it's, I mean, yeah. that is his, yeah. you know, most serious concern or, ah. or Aboriginal youth and the, and well, suicide. But this is a real positive yeah. approach and just a simple thing is use books. It's just okay. it's excellent. We've got a question from the youth representative. So um, she asks, how can we as youth leaders explain to teachers and parents that mental health is not a disease and we as youth have a lot of potential? But it, there is, uh, is mental illness that is a disease. It is a, a health concern, our mental health as much as our physical health, as much as our spiritual health. They're all part of our concern. So what we have to do is, is, is put value on our emotional state as much as we put value on our intellectual state. We may be very, very competent uh, intellectually and have no ability to deal with life and the vicissitudes, as Pierre called it, the vicissitudes of daily living. Uh, the ups and downs. Well, um, I think that a kind of a progressive approach, a proactive approach from everybody is what, and mental health is, is part of physical health, and people in the workplace should be attuned to people and not push them away because they're a sad, sad, boring, irritating human being, but say, hey, what's happening to you? Do you need some help? Would you like me to try and find someone for you to talk to? You know? Speak openly. I mean, you hear that yeah. so often. People will say, I wish people had said, What's How really are you? pinching or you? Or when I came back to work, <laughs> I wish people had said, you know, I mean, yeah. if someone were hit by a bus, you know, you'd send the flowers and yeah. all go and visit and yeah. keep in touch. If someone jumped oh, no, under the bus, for you, waiting, they just waiting nobody, to they see wouldn't if even talk go to you. They look the other way. They think this is so embarrassing. Well, I'm not worried. even going to ask. No. no one will talk about it. No. Um, and I think the important <laughs> message to communicate about kids is that it is a crisis and it. If it goes untreated, it leads, can lead, as oh, you will say, to such suicide, a wasted death. life, perhaps suicide, no, death, yeah. but just an unhappy, less productive life, and, and that intervention well, you're impaired. can help. You're impaired from functioning as being the best you can be. I'm not saying the best of everybody, but just the best that you can be, and that's all we can expect of ourselves or our children or our friends, is just to be the best that you can be. Well, how can you be the best? If you've got really bad judgment and really are not seeing life clearly or you've got a real chemical imbalance and if you're just so stressed at the idea of having to walk out your front door. Yeah. Well, we'll, I think, wrap it up there. Unless, Would you like to leave with one final message? Yeah, you Please, you, you do that. Well, I think I was just trying to do that myself, <laughs> saying that this is something that we, we can't afford to waste these no, lives. And no, I mean, everybody no. in this room, I think, no. obviously knows these issues, some particularly no. more than other. The minister in charge of this for, for the government of Ontario yeah. is here, and people who are advocating for all sorts of groups uh, understand this. But I think we know we've still fallen down, that we're still failing.
yes. our kids yes. and that there's so much more we still yes. have to do in terms of being open and accessible about this and, and having a more effective strategy. I just have one thing to add. I knew you would. And <laughs> from Leonard, <laughs> to Leonard. Um, I've had the occasion very happily of being able to meet with the Dalai Lama through my son, Sasha. He was to have a private meeting with him after some conference he was at, and, and his, the Dalai Lama's aide called. Uh, Sasha and I were having dinner and said, the Dalai Lama would like to have a, an hour-long conversation with you tomorrow morning. Can I bring my mom? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I had a question for the Dalai Lama, and I asked him about uh, happiness. I said, you know, we all want pursuit of happiness. We all want personal happiness. We want, uh, is happiness possible? Is that something that we can He said, if you are warm-hearted and compassionate, you will be happy. And it, that is the truth. If you're willing to give out, to step one foot forward, and to help somebody who you see is suffering, your happiness scale goes right up. And of course, love is all there is. So warm-hearted, it goes without saying, you, you get what you give. But I, I, I'll conclude on that one. I thought he might say life is a bowl of cherries or something. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. No, that was just a no. bad joke. Yeah, it is. Spectacular man. <laughs> That's actually a lovely story. <laughs> we can go. Are we, I would like to uh, thank our two most accomplished guests for being here <laughs> with us today. And I also want to thank all of you, our guests and members, for coming to hear them and their very important message. It's hard not to reflect on the fragility of life when instead of seeing our friend Sylvia here with us today saying the thank you, we are instead celebrating her life next Monday. So these thanks come on her behalf as well. Margaret and Valerie, by shining a light on your personal struggles, you in turn provide enlightenment for all of us. Your discussion today moves these critical issues out of the closet and into the sunshine. JFK said, children are the world's most valuable resource and its best hope for the future. Thank you both for sharing your passion and your ideas to move us to needed action to preserve that future. And please don't stop. We need to continue to hear your voices. On behalf of the combined meeting of the Empire and Canadian Clubs, I would like to thank Margaret Trudeau and Valerie Pringle for speaking with us here today during Children's Mental Health Week. Uh, this lunch is being broadcast on Rogers TV. I want to thank you all for joining us today, and we hope to see you again for lunch. This meeting is adjourned. <laughs>